It's the British Wrestling Experience with Martin, Ollie, and Benno. Welcome to episode 25 of the British Wrestling Experience on postwrestling.com. I'm your host, Martin Bushby, and joining me are Ollie Court and Richard Benson. And guys, we're uh, two weeks away from uh, Christmas Day. Are you, are you guys all ready for Christmas, Ollie? Um, absolutely not. <laughs> uh, I did I did get the tree at the weekend um, with my parents. Um but yeah, not feeling Christmassy at all. Uh, like we were standing in in the garden center behind a woman who was like buying two hundred pounds worth of uh, wow. baubles and decorations. <laughs> so I, I, it's it's all you know, it's all a capitalist sham. <laughs> <laughs> I'm more looking forward to what happens afterwards when I go to Japan. <laughs> we're kind of like that as well. We begrudgingly put up the tiny Christmas tree we got from Amazon. It's about two foot tall. Didn't realize it was quite that small. It makes it <laughs> like like we hate Christmas or something at our house. But yeah, kind of, yeah. It it doesn't feel like it's less than two weeks away, does it? Um, but yeah, it's all going to come thick and fast. Office parties, all kinds of going on for me as well these next two weeks. So even though I'm not in the Christmas spirit yet, I'm sure I'll get there. Yeah, it's the going out and getting drunk, basically, that people most <laughs> <laughs> That's what we live for in the UK. Yeah. Especially with all the uh, politics stuff going on these past couple of weeks. I think people oh, God, need yeah. it, don't they? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, um, as eagle-eyed listeners, uh, our last show was included on the main post-wrestling feed. I mean, huge thanks to John and Wade for making that happen. Um, so if any of you have come over from uh, listening to us on the post-wrestling feed, then uh, welcome to the show and thanks for joining us. And uh, we'll be back on the main feed for the UK TakeOver show in January. So we're uh, looking forward to that one. And um, we've got tons of stuff to get into this week. Um but first up, following on from our show uh, with Will Coolin last time around, I mean, tons more information's come out, and Ollie, you dropped an episode of the Brit Rest Roundtable on Voices of Wrestling, and uh, that further went into these changes in the NXT UK contracts. I mean, obviously, you can listen to the full episode on Voices of Wrestling on their website and on iTunes. And, uh, but in a nutshell, uh, what did you discuss on, on the show? Yeah, it was a big episode of the roundtable there, and I think it's fair to say Rob and Arn, uh, my co-host there, took the lead on sort of the uh, on the scoops, whereas I was there to sort of provide the more, I guess, emotional side and also the uh, the witty remarks uh, to keep things light. But <laughs> I, I can certainly run down what's been going on and what we've, I guess, found out. Um, I think it's interesting. Obviously, this is all you know from secondhand sources no one from inside ww or anyone who works for ww that's important to state so obviously you know you can believe it or not but yeah <laughs> it's sources they trusted um and also interesting to note that um sort of one the the conjecture surrounding it the tweets by uh pete dunn trent seven tyler Bate, sort of saying don't believe the rumors or whatever um not actually clearing up anything <laughs> about it so this is kind of the only um source of information that we have right now so it's it's the best that we have to work with i suppose even though it's you know not it's not a press release from wwe but uh it's probably the best chance you're going to get understanding the situation and it's essentially saying that there's sort of three tiers of nxt uk contract being offered um the, the top tier tier one is sort of pretty much an nxt deal at that point um 
from the beginning of 2000 or not the beginning of 2019 but from near the start of 2019 mm. um things are set to change with regards to how progress and icw can use the talents um primarily not on the vod of progress and icw and also from fight club um attack ott and future shock um the, the the famous line of Triple H saying no distribution from a couple of years ago is probably what they're going to be rolling out shortly because they want that distribution to be on the WWE Network. Um, and that seems to be where things have been going for a while now. Um, but I think 2019 is when that is actually going to come to fruition. And um, we'll see how that plays out going into next year. And tiers two and three, slightly more modified deals. Um essentially unable to wrestle for the promotions on the blacklist. So your New Japan's, your Ring of Honors, your MLW's, your, your Impact's, and obviously Rev Pro as well, and potentially All Elite Wrestling, which may well have triggered sort of this ramping up of the contracts. Um, and that's about it, really. Um, obviously, each wrestler is on their own contract, pretty much. It's not we've grouped them together for simplicity but it's not uh, a one-size-fits-all thing as t-bone tweeted and we know people like devlin and walter are going to have different uh, aspects of their contract they'll be able to wrestle for different companies than where their tier would suggest but the tiers are sort of a way to categorize it more easily uh, and group that information together yeah, exactly. I mean, um, just to jump in there, I mean, Benno, what was your thoughts when you heard about these uh, tiered contracts for the wrestlers? Yeah, it, make, it makes the makes a bit of sense, doesn't it, out of the bitter rumours that Dave Meltzer's reported and that we'd kind of heard and, you know, Ollie just alluded to. You go, The problem is, because we don't know everything about it and because the situation is fluid and is constantly changing uh that's when you get the wrestlers coming out going well you don't know what my contract is or you don't know the full story and yet as ollie rightly said as we said last week you know none of these wrestlers are actually coming out and telling you the full story either um you know i kind of laugh at you know someone like a trend seven saying that 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 people don't know the full story when he can't work his own promotion so you know that kind of tells you everything really it will tell you you know something more than those guys and the WWE are able to tell us and there are obviously reasons why we can't be told certain things whether it's to do with promotions like progress and icw ending up on the network and individual wrestlers obviously don't want to get themselves in trouble either but part of me is like well why don't you just remain silent then in that case mm. uh yeah it's it's kind of kind of crazy really the the situation we we find ourselves in it's just a I think that, that information clears it up a little bit, but again, you know, there are so many, it does sound like with those different tiers, with the different wrestlers, with different individual de- deals, it's still clear as mud. God help you if you're a, a wrestling promotion trying to make sense of this. If you're, <laughs> if, you, if you're a wrestler, it's funny, I mean, I was at, you know, we're going to talk the progress shows later and talking to fans and talking to some of the people I know who work in wrestling. The people who, who work in wrestling are all very frustrated at the fans daring to speculate uh, without the full facts. And the fans are frustrated because they don't know the full facts. And that's kind of the difficult uh, position that we're in at the moment. And, you know, it, it might be great for 
the individual you know wrestlers and the people are getting signed but for the fans right now it's it's also gray um and we all you know one thing we didn't get to go about in too much detail last week is you know we all know the history of wwe when it comes to moving into territories as they did in the in the 1980s and the you know read a history book and you can read up on all of uh some of the other uh, tactics that uh vince mcmahon and wwe employed to to take out the territories uh back in the 1980s people are going to jump to to conclusions and people with the information that's out there and the information Ollie's mentioned there, um, you can't help but, you know, from a fan point of view, there's definitely uh, plenty of negatives there. And until somebody from the other side comes out and clears it up properly, which I don't think we're getting anytime soon, unless Triple H has got some form of conference call uh, planned, it's just going to continue to be yeah, this weird, wild grey area. Um, and that negativity is going to continue to be in the air. Uh, ultimately, it is, I believe, very fan-unfriendly. Mm. Um, obviously, it's great for Pete Dunne, and Pete Dunne can say what he wants, but the, the British wrestling scene is stronger than it's ever been, but ultimately, he's the one benefiting from it the most. Like, mm. the in, literally the individual who is most <laughs> benefiting from this situation. Um, yeah. So it is a bit rich of him. You know, I'm not attacking the guy, but it's rich of him to... to mobilize his fans and be like oh no, there's nothing to worry about nothing to mm. worry about and not actually clear up any worries but just <laughs> you know yeah. please believe me when i say there's nothing to worry about even though this giant monolith that has crushed everything in its sight is now crushing you and <laughs> please just don't notice it until it's too late <laughs> there seem to be um obviously you know, this has been the worst kept secret in British wrestling for uh, for quite a while now. But um, Dave Meltzer reported that um, in the contracts for uh, some of the uh, affiliated promotions, uh, WWE's got the right to just uh, buy them outright. I mean, Benno, mm. that was certainly something that uh, came up on the Voices of Wrestling podcast, but has been talked about quite a bit for um, um, sort of like a you know a really badly kept secret for um, a f- quite. I mean, I've. I've about a year and a half now, I'd say. Mm. It's funny because it didn't surprise me because Meltzer's been saying it outright about ICW. Andy Quilden did a, an interview with my uh, other podcast network, The Indie Corner, and outright said to uh, to Joe Lemon, the interviewer on there, that you know when they were approached by WWE, that was, that was part of the deal. So it was quite, to me, obvious reading to that. Well, that leaves, you know, progress also would probably have got that kind of deal as well yeah that that kind of being a bit more out in the open now and people taking notice uh, it does give you pause um icw i could certainly imagine that happening at some point it's mm. not a promotion i could see running for absolutely forever progress i've got a a very dedicated fan base who are very very loyal to them uh, i wonder if you know hearing that there's a clause like that and that you know nxt uk is very much as, as, as it understandably maybe should be for the owners has become a priority as a full-time job um where does that leave progress does that you mm. know sell out a little bit the, the loyalty some of the, the progress fans have towards the the three owners and and to the promoter as well if you know that's that's the, that's a clause and progress could get shut down tomorrow um again you know whether that's realistic whether that will really happen in 2019 is a, is a big question but yeah it's uh if you you know, again, it was so, it was something that was out there, but the more you think about it, it is something that's uh, that is quite a quite alarming for for fans of both of those promotions. 
I mean, uh, the wrestler Justin Sizem also posted an open letter on his social media, didn't he? Basically <laughs> saying he wants to build the UK scene and how he doesn't want a job with WWE. I mean, this was met with complete derision for a number of wrestlers, uh, most specifically Pete Dunne, Trent Seven, and Tyler Bay. I mean, Benno. I mean, what were your thoughts when you read Sizem's open letter and uh, this uh, this reaction he got from a number of wrestlers on Twitter? Where'd you get a letterhead of paper out with yourself in a cape? Like, where do you get that? That was my main question. Like, I read, read it and it was like, he verbalized a lot of the concerns that, that we have as fans. It was it felt more like the, the fan point of view than the, mm-hmm. the closed shop wrestler point of view that we keep reading everywhere. But he didn't help himself with that kind of positioning himself, you know, big picture of himself in a cape, uh, kind of position himself as maybe the the leader of some form of rebellion or, you know, someone who's going to make it. I think that's kind of that stepped on some toes as well as the fact that, you know, um, in wrestling, you know, talking out of turn in that way, probably got a, got him in trouble with more colleagues than uh, than maybe was right. Um, but, yeah, I didn't love the way he did it, being honest, but. I think he had some points and he made all a lot of the same points we made last week, a lot of the same points we've made earlier in the show. Um, I think he's right in what he said, but you know, that, that essentially, you know, WWE uh, are coming in. We, we all know the history. There's a, it's obvious that WWE's motives have never been clearer. They're only here because of ITV, the stockpile and talent. Okay. There's going to be a takeover in January, but this NXT UK product's not exactly lighting the world on fire. It's hardly their most important property. There's plenty of reason to be skeptical from a fan point of view. And I think size and kind of summed up a lot of that. But again, I think maybe the way he put the point across, uh, led to, you know, some derision from fans and lots of derision from wrestlers. But I would say some of those wrestlers, you know, uh, whether that, derision is coming from a from a reasonable place or not is coming or is coming from a place of you know you've got to protect the boys and you know oh we should all be happy for these wrestlers getting contracts what is there to be unhappy about um never mind the fact that WWE could you know next year snap up all of the upper mid card guys as well as the main event guys that they've, they've already taken um yeah i think i think there's reason to be doubtful of people who are very immediately and you know, in chorus, you know, the three members of British Strong Style, especially at the same time, mm. replying felt very, whether it was intended or not, felt like a very corporate response. Mm. Um, I didn't like that side of it either. But yeah, I think uh, it's fair to say Sizem could have made his message um, a little bit in a bit of a better way. But all in all, yeah, I, I definitely uh, agree with a, a lot of the points that he made. Hang your head in shame, Ben. <laughs> I I loved what Sizen was saying. He was making all the right noises for me. Um, you know, it, it was corny as hell and mm. obviously rattled cages, but that's what we kind of need right now. Mm. Um, and he's exactly the kind of guy who can deliver that because, you know, he's independently wealthy. He doesn't need, because re- obviously his job as uh, Hawkeye <laughs> is uh, probably much better paying than wrestling will ever do. So he not really needing to get in with the boys, as you say, the, the mm-hmm. Pete Dunne group that kind of run British wrestling. And so he doesn't really need to suck up to them, basically. <laughs> uh, it's, it's nice that he was able to, you know, use that and voice an opinion that is probably shared by a lot of other wrestlers who are too afraid to actually say it because they know they'll get haughty derision. Um, but yeah, he vo- he vocalized fan concern at a time where everything, as you say, was just shut it down. Why can't you be happy for us? We're getting paid. <laughs> We're bringing a spotlight to the scene. Um, you know, and Sizem's 
letter as a bit silly as it was mm. advocated for something that's more like the Japanese scene where there are multiple independent promotions who all work together and give the boys as a whole full-time livings with midweek shows, regular tours, you know, that is where the scene was going. And right now it feels like it's in a hell of a limbo and it might just be torn down completely. So I think having someone like Sizem as, you know, it, it was a weird way to put it across, but all the, all the words <laughs> in front of the letterhead uh, made all the sense in the world to me. It wasn't hugely different from, you know, when Chris Brooks did his State of Independence promo yeah, exactly. a, a few months back and he got no grief. Uh, yeah, it was definitely interesting yeah, to see. It's, it's who, who the boys are looking after or not, <laughs> I think, in that regard. And um, I mean, obviously, like Ollie noted at the start, this is all just pure speculation and we're just going off sort of like the rumour mill and sort of news stories that have come out there. But on a recent Fight Club Pro show... Um, Seemed that the British strong style trio Pete Dunn, Tyler Bay, and Trent Seven were making their final appearance for the company, sort of seemingly mm. saying goodbye to the fans after the match. So there must be something in it, Benno. Yeah, there's a big red flag. Sorry, Benno. <laughs> no, definitely. Yeah, I'm with you. Part of me still could be a story. Could be. Could be playing mm. into it. But yeah, it seems. It does seem like you know. For all that you don't know the full story, well, you know that that speaks a lot of truth to what Ollie was saying. And if those guys are tier one, if those guys are going to be off in America doing a lot of NXT proper, then all of the puzzle pieces fit together, don't they? Um, it's a shame because Fight Club Pro shows, you know, as much as they've not exactly been for me the majority of this year, very much built around British Strong Style as well as the, the party atmosphere that they've got there. So, yeah, and a bit of a shame that it, it had to happen. So, you know, suddenly as well on a announced on the night, you know, loser leaves town kind of match rather than something they could maybe do something a bit more long term with. But yeah, it certainly does lend credence to, to there being truth in the, the reports that we're hearing um, and does you know, in the makes me wonder who else that might apply to uh, for Fight Club Pro next year. They've got that Japan show while Ollie is out there and, you know, the, they had the Fight Club Pro guys announced. Travis Banks was announced and got bold. Um, I know that's the week before takeover. Um, I'd expect there's going to be some of those guys having to report to America as well. Maybe that's part of it too, but I wonder if that's the end of it. Yeah, and we could uh, maybe see some more people following that direction for Fight Club Pro and promotions like them next year. So sort of like moving away from um, that, which has obviously dominated the uh, British and European headlines for a while, and uh, and moving on to progress, and um, they held their chapter 80 and 81 this past weekend in Manchester and Sheffield, and myself and Benno attended these live, but before we go into uh, our reports from those shows, uh, a new faction was formed at Chapter 79 last month. Uh, Spike Trevay, Drew Parker, Chuck Mambo and Pastor William Eva formed a stable known as Do Not Resuscitate. And uh, their whole problem is that they feel that some of the progress, progress roster have sold their souls to WWE and NXT UK. And when I first read about this faction, I was sort of rolled my eyes. But watching the show back, it's certainly an interesting story and a new faction in progress here, Ollie. Yeah, it's something Progress have actually done really well throughout their history is sort of leaning into their public image or the stuff that's been going on around them. Um, you know, you look at the origin and the way they'd, you know, always deride the hipsters in London and, uh, you know, before they became a, a comedy banter stable, you know, they were kind of framed around being northern and being tougher than, uh, you know, the, the hipsters in Camden. 
Um, and then also British Strong Style, kind of the same thing, sort of being proud of the West Midlands heritage um, and delivering, you know, a real Strong Style product to progress uh, before they became a comedy banter stable. Um, so now we've sort of got the same thing in Do Not Resuscitate. It's, you know, a heel stable based around not liking where progress progress sort of doing a W1A and controlling the criticism around them by leaning into it. Um, and yeah, I enjoy it. I, I, I actually enjoy the way they presented these guys. It is different to what they've done before with those other two heel factions that sort of criticized progress. Um, and obviously it's a big break, you know, especially for like Mambo and Trevay, um, who really haven't had anything to do in progress outside of a match here and there. Um, and obviously Eva getting back in the picture after, you know, pretty much a couple of years since he just went persona non grata. So I like the concept of, of it all, but I think it's just, it's almost too much at this point for, you know, the free mates who will have, uh, you know, executive producer of WWE UK or NXT UK in their, in their Twitter bio to then suddenly be like, Oh, independent wrestling, even if they're presenting it as a, you know, a heels against progress, it's, it's just too much at this point. It's it's too much to just like take and be like, I'm I'm okay with watching this obviously WWEI's product with the heel wrestlers who are like fighting for independent wrestling. It's just too on the nose with what's going on and they're just too involved with the corporation to like to to present this effectively. It's it's a real the magician's trousers have fallen down moment. Like I'm just not I'm I'm not buying into it anymore. Um, so even though I like the concept of the stable, it's just it's one one on the nose moment too far for progress for me, unfortunately. Well, this faction really bled into uh, into the um, chapter eighty gods and monsters. Obviously, that took place uh, at the Ritz in Manchester on Saturday. And Benno, you were there live for this one. What were some of the highlights uh, from the show for you? I'd say the the stable kind of was a prominent feature of the show. I'm not sure if I'd say it was an absolute highlight, um, but I don't know. I mean, I think, I think I'm a bit more positive on it than Ollie just from being at that Manchester show and seeing Spike Trevay cut a promo. Um, they poured a lot of to put YouTube videos out with the, with the guys doing different promos. I didn't think Drew Parker's vi- promo was very good, but Spike Trevay's promo was great. Chuck Mambo playing the conflicted baby face was great. And on this Manchester show, as I mentioned, yeah, they, they built a lot around the stable. It is something that they're, they're tying you know, quite a few things into on shows. Um, but I think they're carrying it pretty well. I think S- Spike Trevay, I think he cut a, on this Manchester show an absolutely killer kind of open letter to Brit Rez. He, uh, he announced it as promo, uh, obviously alluding to the Justin Sizem stuff. Unfortunately, uh, we were all kind of hopeful Sizem would come out for the, the Atlas Open Challenge, but it didn't happen. Imagine the pop slash booze that he'd get if uh, if they'd have done that. But that, to be honest, one of the highlights of the night was that Spike Trevay promo. It did make me think that uh, this thing has got legs. And being honest, I think it's worth trying as well, just watching throughout this Manchester show. Uh, you know, Spike Trevay doesn't, potentially i mean i like him is he a main eventer is drew parker a main eventer is chuck mambo a main eventer william Ever? i will say no he isn't a main eventer but it's worth throwing you know something at the wall and, and seeing what sticks and based on the evidence in manchester it, it felt to me like you know there's a there's every chance you know a spike trevay could break out of this group and 
and you know, I really do something with this. So I feel yeah, like they he's were... sort of ready for it, Spike Treve, because he had um, he had that great death match with uh, Jimmy mm. Havoc earlier in the year, and like you say, these promos for this faction have been great. So I think certainly if uh, it elevates anybody, it'd be great to see him elevate because mm. I think he's been quite underrated uh, in British wrestling. Definitely, yeah, and, and you know that, that part of the character he's using is you know he had that great death match and it just it didn't go anywhere. You know he got that big win. And it didn't go anyway. Um, so they, they'll be using, you know, some of the, the like Ollie said, you know, drawing from the real life WWE stuff and drawing from the real life bad progress booking that's happened uh, a few times this year. So, yeah, it, a couple of things on that Manchester show definitely gave me hope for him. Uh, all in all, I mean, the, the show was not as strong as the last Manchester show, which I was raving about. It didn't have that killer first half like that, that last Manchester show did, but it had another great atmosphere and it had two matches that would you know stack up on it with anything on a british show this year the main event uh was lax against the cck the version with jonathan gresham and chris brooks the good version uh, my favorite version and probably uh and i'm waiting for the vod but probably the best tag match i've ever seen live um i'll, I'll at least say that um i don't know how many stars i would actually go for it once i watch on vod maybe i'll uh i'll get the fear and uh, i did consider live in the building when you get to it up in it that it could be as close as a five-star match but it was one of those matches where it was just you know lots of lots of near falls lots of kind of lots of kick outs that might not be to everybody's taste lots of kind of last minute saves but lax is so charismatic jonathan gresham is just so good uh, he's got such great chemistry with Chris Brooks as well, who definitely did his part in the match as well. Um, yeah, that was a it was a perfect choice for a main event. You know, being a rematch from their America tour earlier this year, um, and possibly again maybe the best progress match I've seen this year. But again, waiting for the VOD to make an, an absolute judgment on it. But that thing was absolutely fantastic. The other great match was Tyler Bate and, and Ilya Dragunov. Uh, Ilya finally winning a match was a. Uh, a big thing for me in progress. I think uh, if he'd have gone as he'd lost, he'd drawn. If then in this third match, he'd also lost to Tyler Bate, which I was kind of expecting. Um, that would have been quite a disappointing start for, for Iliad in progress because he came out here in Manchester. And to be honest, even before he came out, before they played those crappy tribal drums that they've gone back to using for him for some reason um there were lots of chance for him um it does feel like he's uh connecting with the progress audience so i was glad to see him go over a great match again you know with awesome last five really intense minutes between the two um so yeah you know while the undercard was a lot of the of, of that kind of the new faction um I, I would probably say those two matches, if you were stuck for time, are the two to go out and head out and watch. And, you know, it also had a, a Pete Dunne and, and Mark Andrews match on. That was that was great as well. Um, again, a bit of a sprint. Weird. It was on third. Um, solid match, but uh, a lot of it was kind of lots of callbacks to, to their spots. They've got incredible chemistry. They could have a, a solid slash very good match uh, in the sleep, those two at this point. Um, but again, similar to the main event, might not be to everybody's taste just because of how fast paced it was and you know how many moves with a Z they kind of uh, hit in that one uh, but that was great too and yeah all in all yeah I think like I say two big ma- big matches in the second half uh, like I just mentioned and it's always going to be a very good show even if uh, I was slightly disappointed when uh, poor Dan Maloney came out to, to challenge Trent Seven for the Atlas title <laughs> 
Yeah, I can imagine. Um, well, I mean, the day after this show, um, Progress's Northern Weekend ended with uh, Chapter 81, pour some progress on me at the O2 Academy in Sheffield, and I was in attendance for this one, and a really solid show from top to bottom, and I think I was expecting more uh, more to be revealed and maybe more storylines moved along. Um, but Do Not Resuscitate only featured on one segment in this show. They came out at the end of the Mark Andrews and Mark Haskins match, uh, Haskins and Andrews teamed up to fend them off, and, and then they had the help of Eddie Dennis, who came out to make the save. Uh, Dennis sort of shook hands with Haskins, and then had a stare off with Andrews uh, before heading to the back. I mean, Dennis has obviously spent the majority of the year feuding with Mark Andrews, but mm. it seems now they've got a common enemy in uh, Do Not Resuscitate that we might see them teaming together. So uh, that was the only sort of like major storyline thing going on in that one. And, but it, it, it opened with a cracking match between Ilya Dragunov and Travis Banks. Um, sadly, Ilya didn't pick up the win in this one, but super intense, as you'd expect from both guys. And um, yeah, it, it was quite interesting that uh, Dragunov was quite over with uh, with this Sheffield crowd, considering the some of the uh, reactions he got at Wembley and stuff last year. It seems that... You know, he, um, he seems to be more over with the fans now. Um, yeah, and then we had a British Strong Style uh, taking on Chris Books, Jonathan Gresham and Timothy Thatcher. Obviously, this was a mystery before uh, before those three actually came out. And interesting that Jonathan Gresham, Ring of Honor guy against uh, WWE UK guys. So uh, really interesting there. Uh, but yeah, it was an enjoyable match. It started off as usual, British Strong Style, you know, piss-take match, but then uh, ended up going into something really good, obviously. British Strong Style won that one. And, um, yeah, what was um, what, it wasn't disappointing, but I don't know what I was expecting because I didn't... I'm, I'm not really familiar with Walter's opponent. Ollie, if you can help me out with his name. Uh, Sugar Hero Eerie. Well, here not... We- Come on, Eileen. <laughs> <laughs> well, obviously, he was, uh, they were bigging up that Walter had a mystery opponent and uh, he came in for it. And it was um, it was a good match, obviously. Walter can't have a bad match, but I thought um, maybe slightly longer. Or I don't know what I was expecting, but it seemed that Walter dominated quite a lot of this one and, uh, and picked up the win there. And then we had the main event of LAX against Aussie Open. Obviously, LAX beating CCK the day before, so having a go at their progress tag belts and another really enjoyable one i think lex are uh should be coming to the uk more often if they're going to be having a uh, absolute bangers like this against aussie open and um, some of the people i spoke to in the crowd says it wasn't quite as good as the cck match uh the day before but um i really really enjoyed this one great great overall card only thing that was really disappointing from it was the uh chris ridgeway against paul robinson match and i'd heard they had mm. a, a better match the day before and Really weird stipulation because it ended up being a chain match, and they yeah. kind of just seemed a bit pointless having having the chain in there. And um, I noticed a lot of the audience were sort of drifting off in this one and chattering among themselves. So yeah, two wrestlers that I, I normally enjoy didn't really do it for me in this one. But all in all, a solid show. But I think a lot of people were expecting a, a lot more to come out of this. Maybe a British Strong Style waving goodbye to progress, but I guess. We're going to get that all at the unboxing show. So uh, a quality weekend of wrestling from Progress in the North. But like I just noted there, we're moving to un- unboxing in December. And um, Ollie, I mean, do you think we'll be getting many surprises um, at unboxing on 30th of December? Um, well, obviously, with sort of that 2019 deadline um, on the way with, with what has been reported, 
um, unboxing may be the last chance to sort of put guys together. So I, I think they may be spinning the roulette wheel a bit. I, I would like to, you know, maybe see them bring out the, a, a Doi Darts-esque board and get some uh, kids to throw darts at the board to pick the matches um, rather than doing it all behind the scenes. I mean, if it is, you know, sort of the, the last hurrah for that style of booking, um, you know, open style of booking, um, you know, make it fun. Get the kids involved. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting because it's like I kind of I was expecting there to be maybe title changes over this weekend, and then as the announcement, you know, the the Atlas belt, the World belt, and the Women's belt are all on WWE contracted people. Um, but then you know the, the Manchester show they brought El Ligero back for some reason. Sorry, just Ligero. Um, like I mentioned, you know, I was very disappointed that Dan Maloney wasn't just in Sizem, but Dan Maloney being used in progress kind of indicates there's still going to be a lot of WWE guys on. Uh, yeah, it's, it's going to be the complication of the tiering system, isn't it? I, 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 I was convinced that by the end of this year, a lot of those people would be losing belts, but maybe Trent Seven will drop the Atlas belt. But I could see. Walter sticking around. I could see Ginny sticking around. You know, Eddie Dennis is already looking for bookings next year and progress a, a teasing, doing something with him and Mark Andrews. It's far too soon for that for me, but um, I don't know. I don't know if I'd, I'd guarantee that that's kind of where we're headed at unboxing. Um, but yeah, as as of anything right now, it's just it's so hard to to work out. Really, I could see there being mm-hmm. some changes, but I don't know whether wholesale unboxing will be the end of the line. I, th- I think whether it's going on the network or not will mm. determine a lot of how the talent it's is. It's whether used. they know, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. They probably <laughs> right know as much as we do. Yeah, it's up in the air, even within as well as without. Yeah, it will certainly be interesting to see what they do for that surprise show, how many um, different combinations they'll come up with there. And like you say, Ben, I don't think it is nailed on that there'll be any major changes come 30th of December. So interesting to see, see what they do there. And, uh, Moving away from England now and up to Scotland and insane championship wrestling who held their 11th annual Fear and Loathing event at the Hydro in Glasgow on the 2nd of December. And attendance seems to be reported from uh, 1,500 to 2,000. So obviously uh, another drop from uh, 4,000 that was reported last year. And uh, it's interesting this show didn't really rely on imports as much as the previous year, and uh, only really had the Briscoe brothers uh, thrown in there as the uh, big import team. And um, obviously, before we go into this review, it's worth noting that we haven't been the biggest fans of ICW, especially this past year. I mean, the last time we checked in with them was the Square Go show earlier in the year, and. Uh, I mean, obviously, going off that, I wasn't really expecting much going into this show, but I was pleasantly surprised at some of the matches. I mean, the main highlight for me was the Kaylee Ray against Viper Queen of Insanity rules match. Totally brutal and featured thousands of thumbtacks. And, uh, yeah, really enjoyed that one. But, I mean, a lot of it, I I found myself sort of, like, drifting off. I mean, we seem to have Mark Dallas now as the uh, main sort of, like, heel owner, still sticking around with that... uh, Attitude Era style booking, but I mean, Ollie, what were your thoughts on uh, ICW's biggest show of the year here? Yeah, I mean, I definitely agree. Kaylee Ray versus Viper was the match of the night, the most exciting match. Um, you know, it was very toys heavy. Um, you know, they got the barbed wire tables out, uh, a, a pink cheese grater made an appearance, and obviously the thumbtacks was sort of the big moment in the match um, with both women going through them. Um, and yeah, it was pretty brutal as well. And especially, obviously, you don't really see too many women's hardcore matches around, but um, these two can definitely put them on. 
and make it look very impressive. And it was certainly the highlight of the night. So very good stuff from them. Um, and the second main point I'd probably make is running the hydro and only drawing 2,000 people. I think um, the good old days of of 2015 when... Uh, Drew Galloway uh, lost a, lost the championship to Grado in the main event, which was at the smaller show, but had double the attendance, and that atmosphere was crazy. Um, and I think that'll always be the peak of ICW, and they're, they're well past that peak now. And I think running the Hydro was maybe a bit of a sad way to try and claw some of that relevancy back, but they finally called it a defeat, and will run somewhere else next year for Fear and Loathing. Um, so it, uh, you never like to see attendance going down anywhere, but I think probably deserved <laughs> with the the way they've booked in the last couple of years because they were on the precipice of building something very exciting at the beginning of 2017 and then immediately they went back to red lightning and just the amount of character changes and turns and bullshit that happens it is you know it is attitude era tribute as it has always been but i think it just wore too long in the tooth at a certain point and you know once they'd done grado and they'd done joe coffee there wasn't a whole lot of places to go, and you see that in the main event here when they're getting career mid-carders, Jackie Polo and Lionheart, in the, which would never draw any sort of non-ICW fan in. Um, and I'd, I'd, I'd actually compare this show to um, DDT's big show um, from Sumo Hall um, around about September or October in the... You know, it it was a wacky, eclectic mix of matches on the undercard and then sort of a, a main event, which to an outsider looked quite underwhelming. But to an insider was sort of two two guys who had a very long run in the promotion getting their due. Um, the only difference is DDT had a lot of very good matches, whereas this had some OK matches. <laughs> so it didn't measure up to that. But I thought there was a, a certainly a comparison there um, with Dan Shoko Dino and Daisuke Sasaki and Lionheart and Jackie Polo. But no, you've not been the uh, biggest proponent of ICW. How did you find their uh, biggest show of the year? Well, it wasn't the worst four hours of wrestling I've watched this week. It was the <laughs> last four episodes of NXT UK. Um, yeah, I mean, I'd echo a lot of what Ollie said. It was sad watching it with like a just a very darkened crowd. 2,000 yeah. people, still impressive. But, you know, like Ollie said, when, you, when your show's full with lots of... Mark Dallas and whatever that shit is that they're doing, and and not the best know. atmosphere at all. Exactly, uh, yeah. Everyone's so like if it'd been two thousand in the arena they ran for that Mac, mm. for the McIntyre Grado main event. You know, this would have still been a crazy atmosphere, but mm. it's, everything just gets lost in the shuffle when there's so few people in such a big room. That's the thing, and it's like you know they were only talking about you know Lionheart getting his big moments at the end. I think the two thousand people there were into it. But mm. like you said, Ollie, I mean, I don't want to see Lionheart in big, in big, <laughs> Especially he's, he's not like, as a face. He's, yeah, he's very much, to me, a, a career mid-carder. But, you know, the, the, the hardcore fans that are left and still willing to come to these shows wanted to, want to see it. But then again, they also uh, enjoyed Jeff Jarrett's turn. Um, although I kind of enjoyed that as well. Kind of yeah. what a weird thing, Jeff Jarrett turning up at this show at the last minute and uh, and turning on Grado to hate James Storm. Uh, I can't say yeah, I'm going to be... You can't hate that. That's just funny. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoyed the moment. It was very LOL TNA, but it's LOL ICW at this point. I, I can't see uh, sticking around 
on for the match, whether it, it happens to Tramia Rovers as uh, Jared's trying to get a match with Jimmy Bullard there for some reason. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, whether it, whether it comes to anything, I don't know. Jeff Jarrett's just... I, I've, I've kind of got a, a theory on Jeff Jarrett that there's 20 Jeff Jarrett's running around because he just <laughs> appears absolutely everywhere in ICW and added to that list as, uh, as well as Tramia Rovers in this last week that he randomly turned up to one of their matches for. But that kind of summed up the show for me it was that the highlights came came in the middle at uh, like I say the the women's title match was was very good you know big bumps lots of thumbtack barbed wire they pulled me in the british strong style six man that came right before it with bt gun gnome dar and wolfgang you know three wrestlers i'm not particularly into but a match that was very good i kind of enjoyed trent healing her up uh, reminiscent of those weird progress days we kind of got earlier in the year and last year um, weird that isn't he's a former ICW champ you wouldn't know it, uh, yeah. it, it considering you know how scattergun their booking is um, but he was I, uh, I, th- I think there was approximately 100 former ICW champions on this card <laughs> well that was it but he still I mean the British Strong Star guys at the same time came across as much bigger stars than, than Noam Dar did uh, in the other corner considering he's WWE kind of main roster talent that said something for me as well um, but yeah they were kind of for me, the highlights came there, and then there was just a lot of... It was fine, but, you know, guff on the show. If you ask me to remember anything from the kinky party against Bram and Yeston Rees or the POD other kinky party match or Liam Thompson and Kid Fire, I couldn't tell you anything about them. Um, if you if you told me they didn't even happen, I'd probably believe you. <laughs> um, and, yeah, as for Lionheart and, and uh, not Jackie Palo, Jackie Palo in the main event, uh, that was just... Again, it was a match. There was a lot of... It was four hours of... Well, that was another match for me. Um, and four hours of random Mark Dallas stuff. Um, you know what I'm saying that, though, Benno? I did sort of enjoy the opener, and it even had your boys the Briscoes in it. That was just like a mindless sort of like violence match that I did thought was, uh, was all right to open the show. It's always fun to have something like that on the show. <laughs> yeah, that, that was a fun throwaway match, but throwaway is the word, really. The word, just for me... Yeah, this product's not really for me anyway, uh, but it was a, a slog of a four hours, even with so much car crash kind of TV style on display and so many matches, which should make it go quickly. But my God, it was a it was a long four hours. Well, sort of like hats off to Mark Dallas for uh, building up this promotion. And obviously you'd think they'd benefit more from this uh, alleged sort of buyout from WWE than anyone else. And, you know, hats off to him for uh, for building up this promotion. But... They certainly, I wouldn't have thought they're going to be running the Hydro next year. I mean, they've gone from 6K to 4K, now seemingly 1 to 2,000. And uh, they've uh, announced it, your boy Ilya Dragunov, Ollie, for uh, for the Square Go next year, which is an interesting announcement. Mm-hmm. Again, keep an eye on that network. <laughs> <laughs> So we're uh, moving away from Scotland now and uh, moving on to some TV wrestling and uh, Revolution Pro's weekly show on Free Sports came to an end this past Friday, seeing uh, a good match between Chris Ridgway and Zack Sabre Jr. that has built nicely over the whole series and uh, we also saw the culmination of the tag team tournament and rather than dissecting this final episode, I mean, um, what what your guys, I mean, Ollie will go with you first, thoughts on the Revolution Pro on Free, sport, free Sports TV as a whole, I mean, the it doesn't seem like they're getting a second series, nothing's been said about it thus far, ratings haven't been the best, I mean, it's worth remembering Free Sports is only the most mainstream channel, uh, for me, they've had a really enjoyable week-to-week show, nice stories built from episode to episode, and shame it's not really found an audience, Ollie. 
Mm. Yeah, it's, it's certainly been a, a very good product. Obviously, a bit rough around the edges and sort of some weeks were better than others, some weeks more stacked than others. Um, you know, there's certainly a lot of kinks they would have liked to have ironed out, but I think they did very a very good job considering it was so short notice and um, RevPro didn't put up any of their own money into it, so they haven't really lost anything through it. The ratings... Again, it's very difficult to analyze that on such a small channel. And I don't think, like, I think free sports are more motivated by just grabbing a piece of the pie on every sport they can get at rather than, you know, focusing on huge draws or anything because they're never going to get that. Um, so I, I think all concerned would be happy with what happened. But yeah, it's the buzz around it has certainly not been there as maybe they would have liked it to be. Um, and as I say, some of the episodes were a bit more down than others. Um, I'm hopeful that there's a second series because it was a really enjoyable watch week to week and it was something to look forward to. Um, maybe it's just, you know, the Christmas period getting in the way of, of plans and they can announce something in 2019 for a, a second run. But it, it, I, I've really enjoyed it. I've enjoyed sharing sharing my hobby with my parents um, and my girlfriend and because it's an easy thing to show them rather than getting up some weird pivot share thing and, you know, <laughs> does it have any viruses on their computer or whatever? You know, it's just simple, easy. It's not, look, it's wrestling on the TV and it's wrestling that I watch. So in that regard, it's also been very fun. So, yeah, crossing my fingers for, for something. But, yeah, not promising that they haven't announced anything. But maybe it's just a scheduling issue with the year ending. I can't say myself that I'm particularly I'm not hopeful or really looking forward to a second season. I thought it was mm. fine. I, it just didn't feel like it ever mattered, really. Um, yeah, for me, that. by the end of it, it just felt like this is an old, you know, TV is obviously still very important. Rights fees are driving some of the biggest companies in the world. But at this level, did it really matter? Because, I mean, the best we know the viewers did was 8,000 and... You know, I don't know about RevPro, but I bet your progress have got more than that on their VOD. Never mind, you know, watching that many people, only that many people watching something on TV. Um, mm. It kind of was an old model as well, being on free sports. Uh, I saw the majority of the weeks, but there was a, a week while I was on holiday, and I think the week after that where I just couldn't catch up with her anywhere because it's not a yeah, free sports Yeah, not on, on demand, a, kind of yeah, killed it a bit. not a very 2018, 2019 thing to do. Maybe if they did the second season, you know, there's plenty of lessons to be learned and RevPro could put it on their on their on demand and maybe they'd be it feel a bit more relevant and a bit more related to the to the rest of the RevPro product. Um yeah, I thought it was fine. It just it didn't really feel like appointment viewing for me. I think part of it was a lot of it the fact that it was all taped in, you know, big fat blocks and by the time you got to the finale, it was a bit of a kind of echoey atmosphere, even when good things were happening in the ring. Yeah. The, the fans weren't exactly um, on the feet and were a, a bit muted for big matches like that Ridgeway Zack Sabre match as well. Um, you can put those things right and do a second season, but yeah, I, I don't know if, if, if I was RevPro whether I'd be clamoring to do it. I think if mm. the money would have to be good to do it, really, because I don't really see, and it's interesting, you know, that we'd say this, you know, now, kind of maybe the media landscape has changed such, but I don't think it's really changed RevPro's business at all, um, and I don't think it will change RevPro's business at all. So for me, it, it'd only be worth doing and purely as a, a monetary situation if uh, free sports are, are throwing the money around, because I don't think there's a huge clamoring for a season two. Yeah, and I, I don't I, think I, it attracted I, many sort of like casual fans, did it? It was certainly like people who were into wrestling that were watching it, it seems, Ollie. 
Yeah, I mean, apart from <laughs> the people <laughs> I, I pointed at the TV and said, look at this. Yeah, it certainly didn't probably didn't garner much buzz unless someone looking for Afghanistani cricket accidentally t- turned in. It can't have been many people. Um, I will say that looking at um, the booking of RevPro before these tapings and afterwards, it is kind of clear that they've sort of gotten a roster together. And I think maybe the one legacy thing of this this series of of episodes is that they have definitely improved their sort of long-term booking show-to-show in the cockpit and in the York Hall mm. with guys who feel like Rev Pro guys like Chris Ridgway and the Hunter Brothers and MK McKinnon who are, are turning up regularly after this taping, whereas before they were just a bit scattershot with who actually was on the shows month to month. So if there's one good thing to take out of it, one definite positive is that the booking feels like it's definitely improved and it feels like there is something to be called a Rev Pro roster now. Yeah, I suppose that is a, is a good thing to come out of it. And also they showcased a lot of uh, different talent on the TV show. And, um, you know, certainly people like the Hunter Brothers had not been featuring Rev Pro for a while. And then you had... You had your likes of Carlos Romo, um, I don't think it appeared for Red Pro before, so certainly be interesting to see if those guys turn up in, in Red Pro on the regular. And uh, moving on to uh, NXT UK, which is still rolling on, two episodes airing on the network every Wednesday. And uh, I mean, me and Benno have sort of like suffered through this. And uh, <laughs> for me, the main highlights in the past three weeks of all these hours of NXT TV have been a cracking John Devlin against Pete Dunn match and uh, Travis Banks's comeback, but not a great deal else, Benno, I don't think. No, I mean, Dunn Devlin ruled. It was, it deserved, it deserved really the was, press. Yeah. Got. <laughs> it really did. It deserved, It kind of got a, that was the first I kind of saw people actually talking about this NXT UK product, because the way of, of how good that thing got around. I mean, that was the best Pete Dunn match I've seen in an age. Um, it did also say to me, though, as well, one of these men is a wrestler of the year contender, and it's it's not Pete Dunn, it's Jordan Devlin. Uh, he looked every bit Pete Dunn's equal in that match. It was just, just an awesome, awesome match, and a match that, again... As we've said a couple of times on our last few shows, Devlin, you know, he look he looks more confident in NXT UK. He feels more confident overall. He's in killer shape. I don't know what the uh, the diet is they prescribe to these guys, but he's yeah, he's definitely looking better from that point of view as well. So yeah, that was a big highlight. Um, but by the time I got to episode thirteen and fourteen, I was regretting what me. I think I was wanting to put ICW back on to be honest, because <laughs> they'll give you a great match like that, but the week to week, like you mentioned, us suffering through it. I mean, I mean, that, that episode 14, it had three matches in a row. Joseph Conner, Connors versus Dan Maloney, Wild Boar against Dave Mastiff, and T-Bone versus Liguero. I mean, you'd struggle to put three matches together. That would be less appealing to me, to be honest. Um, no offense to the wrestlers in the match, in the matches, although maybe a bit of offense to some of them. But it just it says everything about this product. There's just so many throwaway TV matches between guys who are spinning the wheels and aren't, aren't doing too much interesting. Uh, the quicker we get to TakeOver, the better. I, I'm hoping, you know, once we get to the Liverpool tapings and we, we get through TakeOver and they've got something to aim for and they can start aiming for the next TakeOver, similar to what I was saying to, about RevPro, it'll feel a little bit more important. It'll feel a bit more like there's there's focus. Um, but yeah, these these double shots, Martin, I don't know about you, but yeah, it, it's just too much. Two hours of 
solid WWE style wrestling, considering the amount of stuff that's available elsewhere. It just doesn't cut it for me anymore. But yeah, I suppose we got to see that Devil and matches match with Flash Morgan Webb. Though was was good too. At least we're getting to see him getting put over strong. If even if the the bulk of the shows can be quite the slug to get through. Yeah, I agree. And I think uh, also WWE are kind of feeling that they're just trying to get to next year, aren't they? They've got mm. all this all this in the can and they're just trying to get it out there, hence the uh, two episodes a week. So yeah, it just seems like they're trying to get through it all until uh, they can sort of like start again with the takeover next year. But I mean, certainly, uh, I mean, there should be some good things coming out of that. But um, yeah, it, it's not the best thing to watch every week. But um <laughs> I mean, moving on, and not something usually in our remit, but uh, Pac won his first major title since leaving WWE by beating uh, Masato Yoshino for the Open the Dreamgate Championship on December the 4th. And I've got to confess, I haven't watched much Dragon Gate since they stopped touring the UK a few years back, but really enjoyed this match. I felt it could have done with uh, some extra time, but some super crisp offense from both and uh saw pack really live up to his bastard moniker by jumping yoshino as uh god save the queen played ollie i mean super <laughs> heel moving uh in some circles there yeah i mean pack is the most exciting thing going probably in all of wrestling right now you just never know what he's gonna be doing next um and obviously taking advantage of um that dragon gate staple of of playing the uh the national anthem usually just the japanese national anthem but okay. you know they, they gave pack <laughs> the honor of having the the british national anthem for him and he just shoved it straight in their face absolutely perfect dissection of his character there um and yeah <laughs> that is definitely something everyone should go and see and also the match is is really strong as well usually these Dreamgate matches go like 40 minutes and bore the hell out of you and the wrestlers are, are better in tags than in singles but Yoshino is one of those Dragon Gate guys who is absolutely fantastic in singles as well as uh, the crazy tags and obviously we know Pac is really good as well and the two of them are, are real life best friends so <laughs> they definitely got everything out of this that they wanted to although with the runtime as you noted they probably have a rematch in them that could go a bit longer on a bigger show but yeah, this was just a, an excellent reset for, for Dragon Gate. If you've never seen it before, this is definitely a great show to jump in on because it had a great undercard, which um, made clear who's feuding with who straight away. You know, you don't really need any any history. And also, the last couple of years of Dragon Gate have been really bad, and they've had a, a fairly big exodus of talent, obviously with Shima and his strong hearts, T-Hawk and... Um, El Lindemann and then Shingo Takagi to Dragon Gate as well as a couple of other guys getting injured and retiring um, it's been a rough old year for Dragon Gate and Pac giving him giving them his uh, using them as his home base is absolutely fantastic for them and fantastic for Pac because it means he gets to main event and absolutely thrive in a scenario where he is familiar with rather than you know if he moved to J New Japan he'd get swallowed up in the junior mix there where it isn't exactly clear who's top dog here he is the top dog and he can have a great run with the dream gate here um and also if you are watching the match wait until afterwards as well for the doi darts because it's fantastic <laughs> <laughs> well yeah it's like you say he certainly seems to be carving out a, a, a very interesting path for himself because he's uh, got some interesting matches coming up for red pro he's got Zach, mm -hmm. Zach saber jr in january and then the match everyone wanted to see against will osprey at york hall in february i mean that was the quickest sellout for Red Pro, uh, the York Hall venue, since he started running there, Benno. 
Yeah, I was sat there on my phone trying to get the tickets at seven o'clock. Dad was trying to talk to me. I was telling him to leave me alone because I needed to book these tickets. <laughs> Don't think he understood how important it was. Yeah, I managed to get some. And yeah, I can't wait to see that. Um, Pac and Osprey was the match, you know, when the rumours started coming out. Well, Pac leaving, you know, God knows how long ago, up until the last couple of months when we've started fantasy booking what we want to see. Osprey's the match. Um, Zack Sabre Jr. will be fantastic as well. Interesting. That's going to be in the, the cockpit scenario rather than a York Hall show. But Osprey and Pac main event in the York Hall show just... To be honest, you could fill that. You know, RevPro genuinely should just fill that card with guys they'd usually use on the cockpit. That is a show you do not need New Japan talent for yeah. anymore because you've got you've got Pack versus Osprey, um, and that's enough to to sell the VODs, and that's enough to yeah to sell it out in, the, in you know ridiculous time minutes, wasn't it? Just crazy. Um, but yeah, I can't wait. I've not seen not seen uh, any of his Dragon Gate stuff yet. Um, although based on Ollie's recommendation there, I think I will watch watch that match this week. The the national anthem stuff definitely sounds up my alley. <laughs> Glad to hear that he's he's still very much in the heel mode. Um, and I guess that's the only question. Yeah, are we going to get dream match with all the moves with Osprey, or are we going to get you know story based uh, pack? Hopefully, we get a bit of a, a blend of the two, um, as it sounds like he's been doing, um, and we get something really, really special in your call because to me that sounds can't miss. Yeah, definitely. And um, staying with British wrestlers in Japan, and, and we're going to see uh, Will Ospreay against Ibushi and Zack Sabre Jr. against Tomohiro Ishii at Wrestle Kingdom in January. I mean, Ospreay's ticking off two dream matches with Pack and Ibushi here, Ollie. Yeah, it's a, a very exciting matchup um, to add to one we already knew, uh, ZSJ versus Ishii. Um, big couple of guys flying the flag for Britain there into big singles matches on a loaded card. And actually, Osprey Ibushi is kicking off the show. It's the first match on the main card. Wow. So that is going to be a, a very exciting moment when <laughs> Osprey's music hits and we're ready to go. Yeah, definitely. I, I, I mean, I was um, at Red Pro in uh, in for WrestleMania weekend in New Orleans, and um, I think they were in a tag match, and then when those two yeah. were in the ring, it was just, yeah, magic. The atmosphere was off the charts. Yeah, yeah it's, it's been building subtly for a while, definitely. Mm. So, yeah. Os- Osprey looking to get match of the year sewn up in January. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you, know, you definitely know that that's what he's going for. But, um, yeah, moving on, and um, um, last week saw the news that uh, Dynamite Kid, Tom Billington, had uh, passed away at the age of 60, and... I caught up uh, with Finley Martin earlier this week. Uh, most people know him for editing Power Slam magazine, and now he has a podcast on uh, Inside the Ropes with uh, Kenny McIntosh. And I caught up with him to talk about the life and career of Tom Billington. And we're back on the show now with Findlay Martin from Inside the Ropes to discuss the life and career of the Dynamite Kid, Tom Billington. Uh, Findlay, thanks for joining us this week. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for having me. Great to be yet. Yeah, great to be back. We just spoke just a few months ago, wasn't it? Um, yeah, it's been it's been a few months now, hasn't it? So um, I mean, there's a lot to digest here as uh, as we talk about Tom Billington. I mean, from his early days training at the infamous Snake Pit Gym in Wigan, his innovative matches with the original Tiger Mask tag team with Davy Boy Smith in the WWF, and his sudden retirement in the nineties. I mean, he it was it's, it's hard to really uh, grasp the influence he's had on wrestling over the years, isn't it? Um. Well, I mean, I suppose it is. Yeah, when you look at it now through 2018 eyes, um, I mean, it, it is because he retired for the first time in December of 91. Uh, and then he made a comeback, uh, wrestled on the British circuit, wrestled for all Japan, finally retired for good in October of 96 in the Mishinoku Pro six man. That was his last ever match. 
which I understand he regretted coming back for because mm. he just he just couldn't do it anymore. He knew that it was over, but he came back and did that match. Um, so, I mean, we're talking like over 22 years since he last wrestled. And if you want to really talk about going back to when he was still a force of nature in, in pro wrestling or a, a real creative force, you, you're going back really to 91 or maybe even earlier. So it's a very long time ago since he was the wrestler that people are talking about today or marveling about today, uh, you know, after his after his death last week. So he is obviously he was a very influential figure, particularly in the late 70s on the British circuit and then in Stampede, then in New Japan and then in WWF. But for modern fans, I mean, let's face it, many people listening into this wouldn't even have been born when he was, you know, one of the best wrestlers, or I would say, for a time at least, the best wrestler in the world. Well, I mean, I mean, certainly most of his matches that have been brought up um, in the obituaries that we've read in the past week or so have been his uh, his series in the early eighties with uh, the original Tiger Mask in New Japan. I mean, um, some people might say that those are overrated today, but they were certainly very innovative in the early eighties, especially when you consider some of the other matches you were seeing around that time period. Oh, you could you could not be more right. Absolutely. If you go back and look at what else was going on in pro wrestling at, at that time, and then you contrast what Satoru Suyama, the original Tiger Mask, uh, and Dynamite Kid were doing, um, people rightly said those matches were years ahead of the time. Absolutely, they were. Um, so yeah, you go back and look at them, and and they still. I think that I think it's fair to say that they were overrated by the if you, if you look at them through two thousand eighteen eyes. But you go back and try and imagine the response to those matches in 1981, 82, 83, when you've got these big hulking guys who are working rest holds and, you know, minimizing the bumps and not really doing a whole lot in in the ring. And you've got these guys doing these unbelievable topes and planches and dives, everything done at 100 miles an hour. So you can see why at the time when those matches took place, you know, people's minds were blown. Well, on, on top of that, I suppose a lot of people really remember him for his, uh, his room with uh, Davey Boy Smith in the WWF. And I, I was trying to think outside of WrestleMania 2, there wasn't uh, that much memorable that they really did in the WWF other than being the uh, two British guys who were, who were represented over there. Uh, well, there was the, obviously there was the match at WrestleMania 2, as you mentioned, but I mean, they were... They were they worked house shows for they were in there for as a team for roughly four years, weren't they? He'd gone in there and done some matches. Dynamite Kid had gone in there and done some matches before they went in as a team. I mean, he had a very famous match with Tiger Mask at Madison Square Garden. I believe that was in 1982. I believe that was August of 82, um, which which is a match that's worth checking out, worth tracking down if you haven't seen it. So if you look at what they did, I mean, Dynamite Kid had the famous match with Randy Savage in the wrestling classic. Uh, they were on Saturday night main events. Um, even their very last night at Survivor Series, there were participants in the big, you know, what was seen at the time as a, as a tremendous match. Uh, I remember watching this. I started watching WWF wrestling in spring of 1988. So by the time Survivor Series 88 took place, I was, you know, I was a tunnel vision diehard WWF fan. <laughs> and I remember that match and just being just, 
not astounded by how good it was because I had seen better matches, but being deeply impressed by the quality of that match and the length of it as well. Such like an epic match, particularly by WWF standards. Company at the time was renowned for its short matches because it's believed that its audience didn't have very long attention spans. And we had this really long uh, 10-team tag team elimination match at Survivor Series 1988. Uh, and I thought they contributed greatly to that match as well. Um, I mean, I think, as if memory serves me correctly, the Fabulous Rougeos were the first team eliminated from that match. Uh, and the Bulldogs and the Rougeos never actually made contact in the match because this took place after the famous uh, fight between Dynamite Kid yeah. Uh, and uh, well, it started with Dynamite and Ray Rougeau, and it was Jack Rougeau who finished the fight. Um, so I'm sure people are aware of that. So the Rougeaus, as far as I know, were eliminated first just to get them out of the way. They were then out of the building before the Bulldogs were eliminated. Then they left, so there was no further altercations. So there were other matches they had on Saturday night's main events. Uh, on TV specials. So they did do a lot. I mean, I know at the time, obviously, DVDs and even VHSs really weren't released back then. Uh, but they, there was a hell of a lot of matches that were taped uh, that would be released in years to come on DVDs. So they did do a lot. Absolutely, they did tons. They did, they did a lot in the company, without a doubt. Well, um, as well as WWF and New Japan, obviously Dynamite Kid, Tom Billington's name synonymous with the Hart family in Canada and uh, Stampede Wrestling. Um, have, have you had a chance to check out much of uh, Dynamite stuff from Stampede? Um, yes, historically. I mean, a lot of it is very poor quality, unfortunately. Um, but, I mean, he had some classic matches with Bad News Allen. Uh, his matches with Bret Hart were the bouts that really revolutionised the style in that territory. He was seen as somebody who moved that company on and really upped the game of, of forced pretty much everyone in that company to up their game to an extent because he was such an incredible performer and everyone he got in there with looked better as a result of his contributions. I mean, he had matches with, with Davy Boy Smith, uh, fought the, uh, was it the Great Gamma, fought him, um, he had matches with Bruce Hart, uh, all sorts of guys in there. So, I mean, he was attached to that company on and off for, well, I guess it would have been 78, I think he went over there. I think that's right. Uh, and he joined WWF, I believe, full time in 84. So he was attached to that company on, on and off for six years. So that's a hell of a lot of matches that he had there. Um, so, I mean, he's somebody that's absolutely worth his matches in that territory are absolutely worth checking out. Uh, as I said, the, the, the footage, the quality of the footage of some of them is unfortunately uh, not as good as what people would ex expect. Um, but, but the action, you know, despite the, the, the standard of the, of the footage, the action is, is generally really good. So I urge people to check those matches out as well. And um, obviously around the WWF, he wasn't one of the, uh, sort of like larger wrestlers was he um and and steroids seemed to play a huge part not only in his rise in the wrestling business but also his downfall um well i mean that has been said um and uh, i suppose it is it is very difficult to argue with that i mean obviously he in his book pure dynamite admitted that he had a lot of heart problems which were 
were connected to his steroid usage because he was using massive amounts of steroids. Uh, but if you go back and look at how small he was on the British circuit, um, you know, in 77, 78, before he left for Canada, he was a guy that was, I think he got, I think he, I think he said in the interview I did with him, he could get up to about 180 pounds off steroids, but on steroids, he could get up to like 220, 225. Um, and when he joined, it was not just WWF, it was All Japan as well. When he was wrestling for All Japan, they were wrestling heavyweight performers. And he felt that he needed that size um, to look competitive in matches against larger performers. So that's why he chose to take steroids. It was a conscious decision. He felt he needed to do it in order um, to find work and to be pushed as a serious performer. I mean, it, you know, he was, I would say, for a time, the best wrestler in the world, if not certainly top three, and certainly top three for, for a few years. Um, but despite his talent and his intensity and his unbelievable instincts for what to do and when and his selling and just everything about him, his risk taking and, and his unbelievable athletic ability as well is something that I think we should uh, give him credit for. Um, I mean, it was just nonstop. I mean, it was a guy who just seemed tireless in there. He could just keep going. He could do 30-minute matches or longer at a frenetic pace. Um, he felt that, you know, despite his talent, despite all these other gifts he had, he felt that he needed to take steroids to up his uh, body masses and particularly, obviously, his, his, uh, his muscle mass mm. to look competitive against larger men. So it was something he felt that he needed to do uh, in order to get on in the wrestling business. Uh, and it's very easy for us to look back and say, well, he shouldn't have done that because it had um, such adverse uh, effects on his health, which obviously it did do. Um, this was a choice he made to become a star in the wrestling business. And um, yeah, that was his choice. I, I believe he knew what he was doing. I believe he knew that what he was doing was not good for his health, but he felt that he had to do that in order to become the star that he wanted to be and to work for the companies that he wanted to perform for and and to make you know to to make the money that was that was out there and that was available in these larger companies. Was it um, in the match in, in WWF where he first experienced um, uh, his first back major back injury? Yeah, that was the famous match in December of 86. Uh, it was a tag team match. There is footage of the match uh, in which he suffers the back injury. And um, if you watch it, no tra there's, it, this is not after some huge, tr tremendous bump or, um, or fall. Or, it's not like you know the famous finish to, to the WrestleMania 2 match between the Bulldogs and the Dream Team, where Dynamite took this incredible uh bump off the ring apron to the floor it was nothing like that um i mean his take on it was that his body had just basically worn out um and it wasn't any significant event that caused this injury his back just basically gave out due to all the bumps and all the uh the abuse that he that he put himself through but the footage from that match is online if people want to check it out 
Yeah, because obviously um, he was only 33 when he retired, wasn't he? I mean, you mentioned before, uh, 96 was his last match in Michinoku Pro. So, I mean, it's it's actually incredible to think that um, on, uh, only 33 he was retired from uh, from this back injury that he s- suffered. Well, absolutely, yeah, that's right. He was born, as everybody knows, he, he died on his 60th birthday. So he was born in, uh, was it the 5th of December, 1958, I believe it was? 5th or 6th of December, I think that's correct. And um, so, yeah, he, he retired in December of 91. So he just turned 33, um, returned to wrestling. I can't remember if it was late 92 or, or early 93. I know he did some old Japan tours and he was, he was wrestling on the British circuit as well. I know because I saw him in action in early 93 at Lancaster Town Hall. Wow. <laughs> uh, so, uh, you know, it was I'd remembered him. I remembered him from the WWF days, and uh, it was there on the poster that he was going to be wrestling. I think he wrestled Dave Fit Finlay, but I could be wrong about that. I'm pretty sure it was Dave Fit Finlay. Mm. Uh, and I remember seeing his name on a poster. And the thing is, with with British wrestling shows, sometimes you you weren't hundred percent sure that the person yeah. Yeah. the person who was on the poster was going to be on the show, but he was there. Uh, and he still had his instincts. Um, he couldn't bump in the way that he had in his prime, but he, he, he could see that he was a guy that had once been, uh, you know, an incredible talent, and he could still do a lot of things. I, I certainly didn't feel shortchanged by his performance um, in in the uh, I think it was the main event that night. Um, but yeah, as you said, yeah, it was it was astonishing that he had to retire so young. Um, but you know, I mean, look at Paige. She's had to retire this year. Mm-hmm. Um, and you look at all the safeguards that are in place now um, that prevent uh, performers from continuing when it is not health un- when it is unhealthy for them to do so. If you go back and look at that 1986 back injury that Dynamite Kids suffered, if he were to have suffered that injury in the WWE of today, they would never have cleared him to return. Um, I mean, I did an interview with Edge last month um, and he revealed to me that um, the neck injury suffered that we that he had to have fusion fusion surgery on in 2003. He told me that had he suffered that injury in the 2018 WWE, he would never have been allowed to make a comeback. He would never have been allowed to wrestle again. So that's how much things have changed in terms of. protecting the performers from themselves you might say so you go back to the 86 injury if he suffered that now dynamite kid would never have been allowed to wrestle in wwe again i mean no doubt he would have found work elsewhere and he would have continued to wrestle elsewhere but he wouldn't have been allowed to return to wwe so it's you can say yeah he he was young of course he was but he'd started wrestling at at an early age and the schedule and the punishment that he put himself through. Um, I mean, a lot of wrestlers, if they'd wrestled until they were 50, would not have put themselves through half of what Billington had put himself through in that period between his teens when he started and 31, uh, sorry, 33, uh, when he first retired uh, on the All Japan show. So if you put it in perspective, perhaps it's not that surprising. Yeah, actually, I'd not, I'd not thought about that. But I mean, um, I mean, you mentioned it earlier. I mean, you interviewed him in 1998 and subsequently 
published his book, Pure Dynamite. I mean, this was one of the first books to truly lift the lid on behind-the-scenes working in wrestling. I mean, uh, what were some of your experiences uh, working with him and interviewing him for uh, Power Slam magazine? Um, well, as you said, I did the interview with him uh, in 1998. Uh, it was originally published in issue 53 of Power Slam. Um, I think I did it over three parts, and um, I think he, I think he enjoyed doing the interview with me and uh, he wanted to stretch it over a few days because I think he actually enjoyed the experience of being interviewed again. And so we talked in depth about his career from the very beginning, being trained by Ted Bentley, you know, uh, on working on the British circuit to Stampede, to New Japan, to All Japan, to WWF, to retirement, to his then physical condition. Um, So, I mean, it was... It was an eye-opening interview. It's a huge interview for the magazine at the time, um, and he was—I um, mean, he was—he was the sort of guy that would answer any question that you asked him, and that's the perfect interviewee. Yeah. He didn't try and duck anything or sidestep anything. He had no reason to. Um, every question I asked, I asked him, he answered. Uh, I felt that it was a forthright interview. Um, I mean, it got really. Really good feedback at the time. Uh, I think it was very big for the magazine. And, um, yeah, it was – It was when you interview somebody, um, you've got to remember we're going back over 20 years now since I did the interview. So Dynamite was a guy who'd sort of been forgotten even then. So that's going back 20 years. So people was, were aware of him. A, lot, a long time fans were aware of who he was, but a lot of fans who had discovered – WWF wrestling in the UK, uh, really sort of in 1991, 1992, they didn't really know who he was. They might have seen him on a few old videotapes, but this was really pre-internet and certainly pre-broadband and pre-YouTube. So a lot of people didn't really know who he was and what he had done and uh, how talented he was and how influential he was, etc., etc. He was more a guy that they'd read about and maybe seen clips of on on VHS tapes, but they weren't really aware of who he was. So to do that interview with with him and get him talk get him talking about all these different things, it was it was a quite a trip down memory lane. And I think for a lot of people it was it was like wow yeah I've heard of this guy and I've heard of this guy and but I'd never. I've never, I've never been exposed to that level of information about him before. They'd only sort of read snippets, or maybe, you know, Bret Hart would have done an interview and maybe talk about how amazing the Dynamite Kid was. But there would maybe only be like one paragraph. By doing a four-page interview with him, like a near four-thousand-word interview with him, which I did in the magazine, that really sort of exposed Tom Billington, Dynamite Kid, to a new audience and who he was, what he'd done and what he meant to the business. Um, so I'm not sure if that answers your question. I may well have gone off on a few tangents there, so I apologise if that answer was a bit garbled. Uh, but oh, your question was, what was he like to interview? So, yeah, it was it was uh, a, certainly an eye-opening experience for me and, um, and a real honour for me as well to speak to somebody who I was aware of by this point. I knew who he was. I knew what he meant to pro wrestling. So, it was a, yeah, it was a huge – I think it was a huge moment for me to interview – somebody of of that caliber who meant that much to the business excellent and um i mean 
obviously you can see some of the wrestlers that he's influenced these days. I mean, obviously, you Chris Benoit and people like that um, seem to be heavily influenced by Dynamite Kid. But um, obviously, what do you think his, his legacy will be in, in wrestling in the long term? Um, I don't really know how to answer that. Um, I mean, whatever his legacy is, it's it's something that was already there. Mm-hmm. Um, before, because it'd been so long since he wrestled. Um, I mean, he was somebody that obviously influenced a lot of performers who entered the business in the 80s um, and, and even into the 90s as well. And and, and probably now uh, fans will be discovering him and maybe, you know, younger, fan, younger people who are maybe just entering wrestling or haven't been wrestling for that long will go back and watch his matches and try and incorporate elements of his style into theirs. Um, it's a very difficult question to answer because there's lots, good, lots of good things about him and lots of bad things about him as well. The fact that he had to retire so young um, tells you that his style was not one that anyone should really emulate because unless you want to completely wreck yourself, um, I mean, if you look at 86 when he suffered the first back injury, that would have been just after his 28th birthday, wouldn't it? The first, the first. So he'd already caused that level of damage to himself in just over a, a decade of full-time wrestling. So you go back and you, if you look at his style, think, yeah, this guy was amazing. And obviously he was. I've already stated that. He was an incredible performer. But is that something that a wrestler today would want to emulate? I mean, I don't think so. So maybe take some aspects of his style, certainly his, his intensity. I mean, he was somebody that brought tremendous believability to, to, to his punches and his stomps. You go back and look at his, you know, his kicks and his stomps just look so realistic. Uh, obviously, snap suplex was something that was often emulated. I think maybe that's something you could incorporate in your act as a tribute to him. Uh, but like the diving headbutt, that's not a move that anyone should be I don't think that's a move that people really should be doing in 2018. And if they're going to, maybe only once a year. Because, I mean, the, the amount of damage that he did to himself with that move, to his knees, to his back, to his neck, and lots of other bumps that he took. And you watch them now and you're just in awe that he that he would put himself through that. But it's not something that rest, I would I would recommend any wrestler today um, try, and, try and emulate because – do you, do you want to suffer those injuries? Of course you don't. Uh, you want to be able to get in there and have a good match and leave the ring, hopefully not much worse shape than when you entered it. By taking risks like that, you're shortening your career and setting yourself up for life after wrestling in tremendous pain. So, you know, it, it's a tricky one, really, what his legacy is. Uh, and I don't know how to answer that one, honestly, really. Um, hopefully I have. Uh, I mean, he was amazing. He did do so many. He had a lot of tremendous matches. Um, but hopefully modern wrestlers won't be seeking to to do what he did and in, to try and get over. They'll find other ways of doing it that will be safer and that will prolong their careers um, and not cause injuries, uh, not cause themselves irreparable damage. The main thing, I suppose, I took away from in the interview in '98 that he said he had absolutely no no regrets and he'd do it all again, which was uh, the main thing that struck me about the interview that you did with him. 
Yeah, that was, uh, I believe that was the last thing he said. Um, I mean, that was the obvious way to end the interview. Um, I mean, at that point, he he couldn't, He I think he described himself as paralysed in the interview, but he actually wasn't paralysed. He still had feeling in his legs. Uh, he could stand at that point with assistance, uh, but he couldn't walk. And this was due to the damage to his back and to his legs. Um, so he wasn't paralyzed in the sense that, you know, the dictionary definition of paralyzed, but he, he couldn't walk. Um, so as far as him saying that he had no regrets, well, I'm not convinced that's true. Um, I think he did have regrets. Um, I think he did regret what he'd done. Um, but he he believed he wanted to be the best. He wanted to steal the show every night. That was his motivation. That was his goal. That was his driving force. He wanted to go out there and he wanted to give people a show. And he wanted to do things that no one else would do because he wanted to push the boundaries of, of what was possible in pro wrestling. So in a sense, you could say he didn't have any regrets because had he not done that, his matches and some of the some of the things he do he had done, he wouldn't have been able to do without taking those risks, if you follow me. So it was almost like a necessary evil that he had to take those risks to leave fans with those memories and to steal the show. But as far as did he regret the consequences of it? Surely he must have done. I never heard him say that. He never told me that he did. Uh, and he stuck to his word there and said, yeah, I, I would do it all again. No regrets. But I I believe I believe that he did regret what he what he had done just because of how just because of the effect it had on him physically. Um, and, um, you know, I think that's a logical assumption to make. I think he sort of saw it as a trade off that I've got to do this to be the best and to be this smaller performer who steals your show and who everyone's talking about. So that means I've got to do all these things, but it came at a terrible price, a terrible physical cost. And he paid for that, you know, when he was in his early thirties, which was, you know, really, really such a shame. But you go back and look at it and think, well, how else was this, was the story going to end? Uh, that was the only real possible ending to him put himself put him putting himself through um so much you know so much just taking those huge bumps you know it's like it's like um it's like anyone in pro wrestling or, or, or stuntmen or anyone who does any type of job or vocation or profession where you where it's involving lots of physical punishment or lots lots of risks there's going to be a price to pay down the road uh, and it's up to that individual person to decide whether or not it's worth it um and um i'm sure at the time he thought it was because he wanted to be the best and he wanted um to leave people with those memories um but in the end he um he was in a position where he, he was no longer able to walk so yeah you know it's um I'm sorry if that's uh, if the answer is not very smooth, but it, it's very difficult to verbalize because you're taking two separate things here. And I'm really I'm really I've never heard him say that he did regret it. So people might say, well, how dare you say that, Finley? You're probably you're wrong. How how can you 
make that assumption. Perhaps I am. But I mean, I, I spoke to Tom, Tom Billington many times. I met him quite a few times. Um, and I think I think he looked back and thought, maybe I shouldn't have done that. Maybe I shouldn't have done that. But he didn't want to admit it because he kind of felt like I can't admit to that. I don't know. I don't know. It's a tricky one, really. It's a tricky one. No, no, I, I understand what you're saying. That's the uh, sort of like feeling that you got from him, even if he didn't verbalise it. But um... he, ne- he certainly never confirmed that. And I'm just, this is just my, uh, this is this is just my conclusion or yeah. my position from my conversations with him. Uh, he certainly didn't like the way he ended up. He he regretted that, um, and he was well aware of why he was in that position. It was because of all the punishment that he had put himself through in the ring, not that his opponents had. He was well aware of what he was doing, that it was the bumps that he voluntarily took that had put him in that condition. Um, so I think there was regret that he'd ended up like that, but I think he he at the time saw it as something that in order to achieve the goal of being the performer that he was, that's what it took. Yeah. Well, um, thanks for uh, joining us today, Finley. Really appreciate you taking the time out to uh, look back at the career of Tom Billington. Thank you for joining us. Oh, well, thanks very much for having me. So thanks to Finley for joining us there. He he's, uh, mentioned earlier he's got a great podcast on Inside the Ropes and also a number of books, uh, Pro Wrestling Through the Power Slam Years and also the Power Slam Interviews Volume 1 and 2. And uh, the interview he conducted with Tom is in the first volume of that book, so... Definitely recommend checking out all three of those books. And finally, before we head out of here, WXW have their 18th anniversary show on the 22nd of December with a stack lineup seeing the return of Axel Dieter Jr. teaming up with his former ring camp partners Timothy Thatcher and Walter to face off against British Strong Style. I mean, Ollie, that's uh, that's just um, a match in itself. That should be a, a cracking match to end uh, WXW's 2018. Yeah, definitely. It's a, a rematch of a match that they actually had before Dita left for NXT and has since done essentially nothing there. <laughs> Unfortunately, a, a horrendous misuse of his talent. And um, let's see if WXW can get to use him a bit more often now with their working relationship with WWE, just so he can actually get some matches in and develop his talents further. Um, but yeah, it will certainly be an emotional one reuniting with the Ring Kampf stable and sort of um give it giving that a one night only return for to sort of a prime of ring camp when it was like full-on story mode in wxw um and obviously facing british strong style who it, an interesting thing to note that pete dunn was on the 17th anniversary show and uh his match wasn't allowed on vod then mm. um We'll see if it is on there this year. <laughs> Again, WXW are very much a, a big part of everything that's going on with NXT UK, the, the the WWE Europe situation as we've got it. And obviously Walter's contract is a big part of that too. So the, uh, the show is definitely looking strong, but it does have that sort of Damocles hanging over it right now. I mean, Benno, you've uh, been to a few WXW shows this year. Uh, this 18th anniversary show uh, looks quite interesting to end the year for him, doesn't it? Yeah, definitely. I think without Shotgun, kind of my WXW viewing has kind of waned since I got back from Tag League. Um, but this does feel like a big place to to jump back in um, and get watching again. Like you say, that 
the big six man does sound great. Um, looks like an interesting card up and down, and it's just an interesting time for WXW right now. Like Ollie said, be interesting to see what happens with Pete. You know, they can now show the, these matches on on their VOD, unlike they could with with Pete done last year. Um, it's just a really interesting time for WXW and. You know, we've <laughs> hopefully we've all learned the lessons of you know some of the things that went wrong with progress in their WWE relationship. Hopefully, you know this the relationship between WXW and WWE doesn't affect some of the, the booking and the the product. Like in my opinion, WWE did affect progress because it'd be a damn shame. Um, but yeah, you know this looks like a, a good card. Carrot, they already announced Pentagon, so you know they're still announcing. Uh, I was worried it was just going to be full of your Wolfgangs and your Joseph Connors, uh, <laughs> Carrot next year, but I don't think we've got to worry that much about WXW. You know, they've still very much got their own identity, they're still bringing in these outside guys, but yeah, um, without shotgun, I've got to be honest, yeah, it's not really been grabbing my attention very much right now. WXW with these road two shows, so hopefully the 18th uh, anniversary show will be, will be one to pull me back in. And yeah, congratulations to him for going for 18 years. That's a hell of an achievement. And uh, before we get out of here, we've got a huge end-of-year Christmas show coming out on Boxing Day on the 26th of December in in conjunction with our friends at the Indie Corner. So um, as well as me, Benno and Ollie, we'll be joined by Joe Lemon and JP Houlihan um, to talk the best and worst of European wrestling in 2018. So really looking forward to that one. And then... Obviously, check out forum.postwrestling.com. Leave your feedback on this week's show or uh, any questions you've got to us. And, uh, yeah, thanks for listening. And, uh, like I said, we'll be back on the 26th of December.